I'm going to tell you an amusing story about my family history. My mom's father and grandfather were both ministers. And my mom's grandfather was a pastor most of his life, but my mom's father uh, started working at a seminary and was the vice president of the school for 20-some years. And my great-grandfather, my mom's grandfather, had helped start the school. And so he was involved with it a lot. And my great-grandfather was known as L.S. Bauman. And the students at the seminary evidently called him Long Sermon Bauman. And then his son, my grandfather, was Paul Ruby Bauman, and so he became known as Papa Repeater. So I come from a long line of long-winded people. And it's funny, because one of the first weeks that I got here, I was asked by someone, how long do you typically preach? Because a lot of my sermons, I think, when I was preaching by video were in the 45 to 55 minute range, but those were really long passages, some of them. But I'm hoping that at some point I'll sort of be able to level out. I actually kind of struggled with it this week. I was worried that I wasn't going to be long enough or it wasn't enough, but bring you what God's put on my heart today. So a while back on a Sunday morning when I was down in Arizona, I was rushing around trying to get ready for the service to start. I wasn't preaching, but I had a lot going on, and I was approached by an elderly lady in the church that I had become friends with. And Mary sometimes had theological questions for me. Sometimes she had some Bible trivia she wanted to share with me or share with me something that she had learned that week. Sometimes just a funny story. But this Sunday, Mary had a very practical question. We had just started using name tags, and Mary came up to me and said, Craig, do the name tags have a date on them? I didn't like the process of trying to get it this week. Can I just wear this one every week? I didn't know, so I looked down at my shirt, and I said, yeah, Mary, look right there. It has today's date on it. And she says, Craig, I'm blind. I felt about this big. Mary got a good chuckle out of it, so I can look back and laugh at myself now. But I was thinking about that incident this week as I was studying, and what really stood out to me is how much I take my eyesight for granted. You see, I knew very well that Mary was blind. I was the head of the care ministry there, and I arranged rides for her to Bible studies and other things because she couldn't drive. But in that moment, I just assumed that because I could see my name tag that she could see hers or mine as well. That idea of not being able to see it, even though I knew her condition, didn't cross my mind until it was too late. But in thinking about that and thinking about Mary's condition, what if I couldn't see? What if I couldn't see the beauty of God's creation? And we get asked over and over by people, how are you liking Colorado? And we love it. It is absolutely gorgeous here. But what if I couldn't see that? More tragically, what if I couldn't see my wife's face or the smiles of my children? As I got to think about this, so many of the greatest joys in my life come from sight. Today we're going to look at Matthew 20, 29 to 34, which is a short story about Jesus healing two blind men. But in this story, I want to point out that there is something far worse in this life than physical blindness. 
begin reading in verse 29, that as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained sight and followed him. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage for this story that we're going to look at today, I thank you for the way it's touched me this week as I've studied it. I pray that you be with me as I, I speak, that I would be able to communicate clearly what you've laid on my heart, and that the listeners would be as touched by it as I have been. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So verse 29 begins with, as they were leaving Jericho. Now, Jericho was the last city that you would pass through on your way to Jerusalem after crossing the Sea of or the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. It was about 18 miles from Jerusalem. And remember, Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem, his final journey to Jerusalem. He's on his way to face his crucifixion. But at this point, as he's making this journey, he's still popular. We see here that a large crowd is following him. You know, he is Jesus the healer, and there are crowds following him, hoping to be healed or hoping to see a show. They want to see what, what this Jesus is going to do now. So that's the setting for where we're at. It continues in verse 30. The two blind men sitting by the road... Hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You know, I was thinking about what it would be like to be blind. I was mostly thinking about what I would miss seeing. Or if I had never had sight, what it would be like to have never seen anything. But as I got to thinking more about it, looking at this passage, I was thinking, just what would life be like if I couldn't see? I really like driving. I really enjoy it. Ask my wife. I, I drive everywhere. We go on 12-hour trips, and I do all the driving. I just It's not that I don't trust her. She's a great driver, but I like driving. I would miss that. I would miss it terribly. What about things I enjoy? I told you before, at one point in my life, I was an avid golfer. There's a book I read a long time ago by a gentleman who, over a year or so's time, caddied for celebrities and for professional golfers and for people he thought was interesting. And one of those people he thought was interesting was a gentleman who was completely blind and played golf. And he would have to tee the ball up for him and put him in position and describe to him what the shot was going to look like and how far he was going to hit it. And he said on one hole, he set him up and he thought he did everything right. And the gentleman took a swing and he hit the ball and it went right in the lake. And the caddy said, well, you're in the water. The blind man said, what water? <laughs> he didn't mention that. You think of, what could I enjoy if I was blind? What things in life would there to bring joy? 
What about employment? What could I do for a living if I didn't have sight? I think so much of my job is reading that you can read Braille, but the, the amount I, I just couldn't imagine with the amount of reading I do, how I would do that and how would I convey to people that I wasn't seeing. I didn't like preaching to the camera. I much prefer looking at your faces. That would be hard. But I was curious what jobs there were out there for people who were seeing impaired, and I, I found a website that listed all sorts of things, from teachers to social workers, even doctors or masseuses and chiropractors, customer service representatives, writers, journalists, attorneys, authors, chefs. This one fascinated me that you could be an architect and be blind. I don't, I'm not even sure how that works, but I was just amazed at the, the list of all these things that are available now to people with sight impairment. But think about 2,000 years ago when Jesus was alive, when Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem, and these two men were crying out. They wouldn't have been able to travel at all without assistance. There was nothing that they could have done. I can't imagine that there was anything that brought them real joy to their life like we have with our hobbies or the, the things that we are blessed with in our lives. And as far as employment, there was nothing they could have done. They would have been completely reliant upon their family or friends to support them in everything they did. And if you didn't have a family or friends that could have support you for your entire life, then you were faced with taking to the streets to beg. And that's mostly like where, most likely the state that these two men were in. On the street, begging for their existence. But when they hear the news that Jesus is coming by, man, they get excited. And they cry out and they call to him as the son of David. This was a way of calling him the Messiah that the son of David meant that they believed in him. He was the Messiah. They'd heard the things he had done. They'd heard about his power, which could have only been from God. And they cried out to him as their Messiah. Verse 31, the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They would not be silenced. Think about this, how could you silence these two men who were so in need? As people were wanting a show, they were wanting to follow, maybe they wanted heal, maybe they wanted time with Jesus, maybe they they wanted to be associated with this person who was gaining popularity, and they they looked at the lowliest among them and said, Get back, be quiet. I think in our pride we often view ourselves as being better than others and more worthy. But we see what Jesus' response is. Verse 32, And he stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were talking about when Jesus was first beginning his journey towards Jerusalem, he stopped and, and healed someone. But I just find that amazing that he would do that. You know, when I am on mission for something, 
I have to be completely focused on it. Even something as simple as cooking dinner, my wife could tell you she could be talking to me and I may be getting about every fifth word because I am focused. And if it's something that I deem to be more important, like writing a sermon, I have to pretty much tune everything else out. See, I think I'm more of a people-oriented person than I'm a task-oriented person, so throughout my life I've had to develop ways of actually getting things done. And for me, it's, it's you have to focus on one thing. So Jesus is on a mission to save the world from its sin. And he takes the time to stop for the two lowliest people around and say, what is it that you want me to do for you? I think we need to praise God that that's the way Jesus is, that he doesn't think like us. He wasn't that way then, and he's not that way now. Here the lowliest are calling out to him, and he stopped. And I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be one of those two blind men that I can't imagine how disorienting it would be to not be able to see and to hear all of that noise and the commotion and what that crowd would have felt like and you're being pressed on and the noises and your senses that you have are being overwhelmed and you're trying to cry out above the crowd and then maybe it calms down just a bit or there's a murmur and then you hear the voice of Jesus say, what is it that you want me to do for you? He's calling back to you can't even imagine the eternal God of the universe stopping to ask you what he wants you to what you want him to do for you and they cry out in verse 33 Lord we want our eyes to be opened we want to see verse 34 moved with compassion Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained sight followed him. Compassion here again, is, we've looked at it a few times already, it's the idea of having your stomach turned. The literal translation is having your bowels turned. They thought we look at the heart as our seat of emotion. They looked at the stomach. And you think there are things in this life that are, that are gut-wrenching. And that's the kind of compassion that Jesus had for them as they creator of the universe who had made a perfect and sinless world to see these two creatures of his afflicted with blindness he had compassion on them and Matthew again here is presenting Jesus as the Messiah to his audience no ordinary man could have given these two men sight that Jesus as Matthew's pointing this, that Jesus is on his way, he's continually showing Jesus to be the Messiah. I said at the beginning that there is something worse in this world than physical blindness, and that is spiritual blindness. Think about these two men that they, in their lowly state, sitting on the road, only hearing things as people pass by. They'd heard stories of Jesus. And somehow they knew that he was their Messiah, that he was their Savior. Compare that with the nation of Israel around them. Jack Kingsbury said in his commentary that the sight of these blind men discloses the 
blindness of Israel's sight. So as Jesus is now still popular, still has a crowd following him, the passage immediately after this will be the triumphal entry where Jesus will come into Jerusalem and the crowds are going to shout, Hosanna! Praise to the one who comes from God. And yet soon after that, in their blindness, they will call for his execution, for his crucifixion. They are spiritually blind. Now we look at that in comparison today. The nation of Israel was spiritually blind to their Messiah. But we have the truth of who Jesus was. And how sad is it that they were blind with God himself in their presence. But we can be spiritually blind in our faith. Let's look at two things from this passage that in relation to spiritual blindness. And this first one is compassion. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to have compassion for the world around us. Like I said, it's that gut-wrenching kind of compassion that will not let you turn aside. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the religious leaders saw the need, but they felt like they were above that need, that they were too good to help that man. But then the Samaritan had compassion. His stomach was turned at the sight, and he could not go on and leave that man there to die. So we look at this story today. Jesus didn't just see these blind men and feel bad for them. He did something about it. We can't always meet the physical needs of everyone around us, but we have spiritual truth. I'm going to read to you from Acts 3, verse 3. As Acts 3 starts, Peter and John are heading to the temple, and it's describing a man who sits and begs at the temple because he's lame. In verse 3, it starts that when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. He was begging from them. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, I don't believe that any of us are going to go out today and heal someone who's lame. But we have spiritual truth. We have the gospel, the good news. That can change people's lives. And in the same way that that man got up and walked and people took note, when someone's life is changed, other people take note. And we have that power in what we know. 
But if we don't have the compassion to look at the world around us and see their need for Jesus, then we're never going to share it. We need to pray for a compassionate heart. Pray for eyes that are open and sensitive to the needs of others. Pray for opportunities to serve. Pray for those who are serving in ways we can't. As I look at our nation, I, the way we seem to be unraveling morally at an ever-increasing pace, it's easy to feel better than that. I can't believe you would think or feel that or do that. And we're better than, instead of having compassion on them for being lost. If we have that compassion and we share the truth, we can change people's lives. I think this is important both individually and as a church. And that's why I want to mention that you know, I've been here a couple months. I've gotten to know a little bit of the community. I've gotten to know a little bit of you. Again, I'm looking forward to having more fellowship and getting to know everyone better. But I really hope that if, if there was something that we did for the community before that was a passion of yours, bring it to me. If you have an idea of a way that we can reach out to people, bring it to me. We may not be able to do them all, but I want to hear your heart for this community. I want to see what we can do be known more and more as a, a church that, that loves Cortez, that loves Montezuma County. I think this is very important. Our second thing we're going to look at in regards to spiritual blindness is what is the proper response to Jesus? Did you notice what the two men did the moment that Jesus healed them? They got up and they followed him. Twice they had called out to him as the son of David. They had believed in him. The moment they had believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that he was their Messiah, their eternal destiny was secured. But the moment he healed them, the moment they regained their sight and they were able to follow, they did it. That is the proper response to Jesus. When we believe in Jesus as our Savior, our eternal destiny is secure, but what are we doing with that faith? We too have been changed. One of my favorite verses is Romans 8.11. It says that if the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is within you, or he dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. I think it's just such a beautiful verse that throughout that section of Romans as Paul is comparing the flesh and the Spirit, and we think about our flesh and how we look forward to having a glorified body someday that no longer sins, that no longer desires the things that are against God. But even now in this body, that we have the Spirit of God within us and it's giving us life. Just like these blind men had their lives changed, our lives have been changed too. And we need to live that out by becoming disciples and following 
to be a disciple is to discipline yourself in the teachings of your master and to do your best to emulate them. We've been given a new life, and we need to live that out in discipleship for our Lord. I am so grateful for the gift of sight. And this morning I got to see the sleeping faces of my babies, and I did get to see my wife. And as I drove away from our home, I was heading east, and the sun had come up about 20 minutes before, and it was in some clouds right above the La Platas, and there was these streaks of light coming down. It was just absolutely magnificent. And then a couple minutes later, I turned back southwest, and I was looking at the sleeping ute in the mesa, and they were just basked in the morning light. After having studied this all week, I thanked God that I could see. It was so beautiful. Even more, I thank God for my spiritual sight, that I know the truth about Jesus, that that truth can change my life, that it can give me the compassion that I need to love like Jesus did, that it changed me in a way that I can follow him in a way I never could without him. And I was thinking about this story of the two blind men. The guy was 23 or 4, and I'd never had my, I hadn't had my vision checked in seven or eight years. And I had a friend tell me that your eyes are bad. You need to go get them checked. And I, I didn't believe him right away. And I went to a football game, and the scoreboard that I had been able to read the year before now looked all blurry. So I went to an optometrist to have my eyes checked. They told me they were bad. And a week later, my glasses came in. I put them on, and it was like someone turned the lights on in the world. It was amazing. But think about that, to never have seen anything in your life. And Jesus touches your eyes. And the first thing you get to see is God in the flesh. Absolutely amazing. When we think about our sight, we think about our spiritual sight. I think our eyes have been open, but things can get dim. I think about that first time I had glasses on. I think about another time that I hadn't been to an optometrist in four or more years. If my wife doesn't hound me, I don't do these things. And so she made me an appointment, and I went, and my prescription had changed drastically. And it was like that same feeling all over again that the lights got turned on again. I could see things clearly. I didn't have a headache when I drove. Spiritually, I think it's we have to be careful that we don't let our vision get dimmed, that we pray to God and ask him to show us the things that need to be revealed in our life to keep our vision clear. I'm thankful that I have my spiritual eyes open to the truth and I pray for the ways in which I am spiritually blind. And I would suggest you do the same. We all need that checkup from time to time. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you that 
even in a short story, we can see your love and compassion for the world, that love that sent Jesus here, and how evident it was while he was on earth. And we know you love us just the same. We pray that you would give us compassion for the world around us. Lord, give us the burning desire to follow you and keep our spiritual vision clear to the things that you want from us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. I have decided to follow Jesus.